This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington, and joining us from Boston is author and historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. Her latest book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. And boy, now is the time to talk to you, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Thank you for being with us. I'm very glad always to be with you, Steve. Is this a defining moment in our country's history? I think there's no question that it's a defining moment in our country's history. I mean, think about it. Um, The overwhelming majority of our people have never seen a situation like this um, that so severely disrupts our daily routines, our work habits, our children's schools, our interactions with neighbors and and our our family. Um, And that's where, you know, history can provide us some solace, I believe, in perspective, because it happened during World War II. You know, it's happened at other times, but those people are older in our society right now to have imagined that. So the panic in the air and the need for leadership right now and coordinated leadership is is as great as it's been in a long time. And of course, we remember what happened on September 11th. It affected the psyche of Americans. It certainly affected the way we traveled and lived. But President Bush at the time said, go back to work, go to school, go to the baseball games. Life is going to return to some sort of normalcy. It's completely opposite today. No, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the idea after September 11th was the best way to allay the panic and fear was to return to the rituals of your daily life. I mean, that's what gives everybody strength to know this morning you're going to have your kids go off to school, you're going to see them at the end of the day, you're going to go to your work job. And that was even true, you know, during the um, World War II era. Um, it was an incredible panic to imagine that Great Britain was the only country standing against the Nazis after the spring of 1940, and that Western civilization might have been at risk. But the answer was to get people mobilized, to get the war machinery going, to get the trucks and the tanks and the planes and all the equipment we needed so you could be together with the camaraderie of knowing you were working as citizens and as soldiers to make the, the end result possible. And to now have to absorb this kind of overwhelming majority of change in our lives without being able to do it together um, is, is, makes it really hard, I think. When President Harry S. Truman says the buck stops here, what was he referring to? What was the message during his administration? Oh, I think the most important message, and I think it's absolutely critical today as well, is he's saying in the, in the end the president has to take responsibility for what happens. Yes, there are people below him. Yes, there are chains of command. But he is the person chosen by the American people to be the leader in charge. And, you know, what was interesting to me, I remember reading that before FDR took office at that inaugural time, that he was actually waiting for the responsibility to devolve on him because he wanted to shoulder that weight. And and essentially that's what he said in his inauguration. You know, he said uh, he promised the country that as their new president, he would take immediate responsibility for the problems. He was going to call Congress into special session. He had a whole series of recommendations for them. But if they failed to act, he would ask for broad executive powers to wage a war against the emergency as great as if we were at war. So he said the people had asked him for leadership, and he was prepared to take that responsibility. I think the country, there's a mystical sense when you know that the president has taken that responsibility, and you know that you're getting a central voice, as we had with his fireside chats in particular. Well, here is that moment from March 1933 on the east front of the U.S. Capitol, President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Preeminently the time to speak the truth 
the whole truth frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. From 1933, FDR's inaugural address. Among the many books by Doris Kearns Goodwin is No Ordinary Time, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. And Doris, I know you've heard that line so many times, but as you hear it again, your reaction? Well, there's two things about it. One is that he also said that this was a time to tell the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly, and only a foolish optimist would deny the dark realities. So he had the right balance between the realism of how deep the problem was and the optimism that was in the very beginning of that, that this great nation will endure. And somehow by asking for the authority of Congress to have executive powers as if we were at a war, it made the people feel that somebody was in charge. In fact, the next day, um, headlines said, we have a leader, the era of inaction is over. It's the magical thing when a speaker has, so the second part of it was, there's something about Franklin Roosevelt's voice that was so assuring, something about it that had a certain gravity. And he also had been the governor of the New York State in those prior years to 1933, who had done the most to help his state using state power to alleviate the problems of the Depression. So he was perfectly suited, I think, to become the person to take on that that responsibility for the nation as a whole. And historians consider that inaugural probably one of the most impactful speeches in American history because it did change the mood and allowed him, as he said then, to take all the actions that had to be taken, in particular to call an emergency session of Congress in action, to enact in one day banking legislation that was able to shore up the banks that were unable to give people the deposits that they needed, and then he'd have a fireside chat and explain why all this was necessary. So people felt a sense that he was there and somehow things would get better, which is the mystery of leadership. We are talking with historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. Her latest book is Leadership in Turbulent Times. And, of course, your best-selling book turned into a movie, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. And we covered a reenactment of the Gettysburg Address for C-SPAN television, James Getty, portraying our 16th president. Let's listen. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom and the government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth and of course one of the shortest speeches by any president one of the most memorable james getty portraying president abraham lincoln 
Doris Kearns Goodwin, your reaction? Well, I think what President Lincoln was able to do in that address, and remember, this is November of 63. There's still going to be another whole year, another whole year and a half, essentially, of this terrible war going on. And what he did was to remind American people of why this war was essential, that there were ideals of our nation, what we were founded upon. That's where the of the people, by the people, for the people comes in, that it was a war at this point by November of 63, not only for restoring the Union, but for emancipation of the slaves. And he's really making the Declaration of Independence become an important moment here and telling people it's going to go, it's going to, we have a great task before us, but it's a worthy task for all of us. So it's both a a way of, of mobilizing the people's spirit to continue on with this terrible war. One of the troubles with history is we know how things ended so that it's easy to say, oh, that turned out all right, the Civil War. Oh, yes, World War II turned out all right. But when the people are living in that time of anxiety and how to get through that on a daily basis, the communication at some point from a president can prove absolutely essential. And, of course, this is memorized by students alike, generations after generations, not just the beauty of the language, but because it was in the right place at the right time that he made that that speech. Which is, of course, what we are living through today, right now, that uncertainty. The uncertainty is the hardest thing for people. And and that's where, you know, you, it called, there's a story of FDR's inaugural where I remember hearing it when I was at the library there, that a man wrote in, and he said things were so difficult in his life. He had lost his roof, his dog had run away, his wife was mad at him, he'd lost his job, but now everything was all right because FDR was there. Um, so uncertainty can't be undone by a president, but if you feel that the president is moving in directions and you are clear and they explain things, I mean, the thing that FDR explained with the banking crisis, people had been unable to get money out of their banks long long unruly lines in those weeks before FDR's inaugural. Some states were closing banks, others weren't. It was a very situation like now, in a sense, where there was no national direction. And so what he did was to have a bank holiday for an entire week and then explain to people why the banks didn't have money. And it's you know, and he just explained it as if you were a teacher explaining they don't keep the money in there. They move it to loans and mortgages. Some banks had unfortunately, put money into the stock market. And they were going to have federal funds would be flown to the banks (laughs) immediately. There's a fleet of planes waiting so that if they had to come back to get their money after that week was over, it was safe. He said it would be safer for you than having in your mattress. So long lines form on that Monday morning after he gives a fireside chat the Sunday night, the first fireside chat, and they're worried, oh, my God, but they're actually carrying their money back to the banks and that banking crisis is then solved. And there's still huge systemic problems they have to solve. It. He keeps the Congress in session. That was the emergency session to deal with the banking crisis. And he says, well, I think I'll keep it here. And that's the 100 days. That's the new deal. I went back to our three-hour in-depth interview, which, by the way, is available on our website at cspan.org. And I'm going to ask you one of the questions I asked you in that conversation, which we so appreciated. Does the president make the moment or does the moment make the president? I think what happens is a crisis provides an opportunity for um, true leadership to emerge because then the person can mobilize. We have separated institutions in this country. It's hard for things to all move together, but a crisis creates that opportunity. But the president has to have the qualities that 
are able to mobilize people in that time of crisis, and it can also be great failure. I mean, thinking about James Buchanan, president in the 1850s, the crisis was already there between slavery and anti-slavery. The, the, the two sides, the North and the South, were beginning to split apart. There was, there was Harper's Ferry. There was a Supreme Court decision in Dred Scott. And Buchanan escalated the problem rather than making it better. Lincoln came in, same crisis, even worse, and is able to deal with it. Or think of Herbert Hoover in the 1920s after the stock market crash. His ideology just could not let him let go until too late of the idea that the problem had to be solved by local and state governments and private charity so that the federal government should not be involved. It would make things worse. He finally got around to doing some acts right before the inauguration of FDR, but he's considered one of our presidents who did not live up to that opportunity of the crisis. Let me share with you two more recent moments. This from January 28, 1986, the Challenger explosion, and late that afternoon, President Ronald Reagan said this from the Oval Office. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Doris Kearns Goodwin, a defining moment for President Ronald Reagan. It showed that at that moment that a president was able to absorb, you know, the sense of incredible sorrow that people felt because this was a crisis where they had seen so much of this actually happen. So it came into their lives in a very visceral way. And yet, not only giving tribute to them, we'd never forget them, but saying, but we will go forward. Um, because at that point, you know, the space program was such a part of America's innovation, our sense of excitement, our sense of the future. And he combined an understanding of the people whose lives were lost with the need for solace, with the need for going forward in the future. You know, just, uh, just as Lincoln did, just as FDR did, you know, to, that's the key. That somehow you deal with the problem at hand but you let people know that we will move forward, even in this area. And another very short speech, only four and a half minutes, with the words crafted in part by then-presidential speechwriter Peggy Noonan. This next example, though, was an unscripted moment just a couple of days after 9-11 on September 14, 2001, in Lower Manhattan, President George W. Bush. Let's listen. I want you all to know that America today, America today, is on bended knees in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! And again, that was an impromptu moment, but when people look back at 9-11, they often refer to that on September 14th. Absolutely, because I think what President Bush shows there is empathy for the people and his understanding that in the end, it's not simply his voice, but how his voice 
mobilizes their voice. And when they, you know, when he said, I can hear you and the rest of the world can hear you, it meant that those people felt empowered by the president. I mean, Bush did almost everything right in those first couple of days, you know, going to a mosque, going to New York to ground zero, responding at this moment. What that takes to respond, it means you're listening. It means you're empathetic. It means that you're willing to um, take that moment that's provided from you and your instincts are good. You know, to, to, to just say, as, as, as what we remember, we remember more than the speeches he gave that moment because it connects him to the crowd. And that's, again, what communication is. It's not just simply pretty words that you're reciting poetry. It's that you're moving a group of people to feel something or to do something that they otherwise might not have done. And that's what great communication is. We are talking with Doris Kearns Goodwin among her books, Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream, Every Four Years, Team of Rivals, The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism, and of course her most recent book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. So let's talk about the current occupant of the White House in these turbulent times. How is he doing? Well, clearly in these last days, the tone of his voice has shifted to something more urgent but I think it'll be hard for people um, not to remember the earlier remarks that he made about how this was going to end soon, that we have beautiful testing, and that you know all of a sudden it's going to be gone and it's not serious or it's a democratic hoax. Um, I mean, hopefully, since we need a leader right now, um, the fact that the tone has shifted to be more, um, at least more solemn, um, but even listening to what, what happened today, you have to be careful about over-promising things. If they can't be delivered, then, then the trust and the credibility is not there. And part of our problem as Americans right now is our trust in government is so much less than it would have been in those earlier times. And our trust in this president, according to polls, is not that great. And people are getting their news not simply from his briefings every day, but rather from all sorts of sources on the Internet. And so that one reliable source, I mean, when Franklin Roosevelt gave his fireside chats, 80% of the people would be listening. Um, Saul Bellow said you could walk down the street on a hot Chicago night and watch everybody looking at their radio and not miss a word of what he was saying. So there's a central source of believable information. And, you know, right now it's much more scattered, and sometimes the president will say something and then somebody in the administration has to correct it. And so I think it's really important that he be prepared when he goes before the public. And maybe you don't have these briefings where he's out there every day. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt realized, somebody said to him in the middle of the war, you should just go on the radio every day. And he said, if my speeches ever become routine, they will lose their effectiveness. Plus, he prepared day after day after day for each one of those fireside chats. So that I think it's a question the president needs to ask is his team should be out there every day, but should he be waiting to talk to us when he's clear about what the facts are and when, when he's, we can be sure that the source of the information is correct. And as you know, he's been very critical of government, referring to bureaucrats as deep state. But these bureaucrats are the intelligence community, FEMA, OSHA, CDC, NIH, the very agencies that we need right now. And the irony is in so many ways that there's been in these last years even a denigration of government. But what is government? but the collective resources of the people and public servants who have dedicated their lives to government agencies, as, we, as we've seen in so many of these fields, whether it's the FDA or FEMA, et cetera, et cetera, 
deserve to be honored and respected. And, and I think now, as we know we need these people, maybe government doesn't become something faceless. It happened a little bit during the shutdown when a lot of agencies that people wanted in their everyday life were not there. Then you realize, oh, that's government. <laughs> government is not this faceless thing that we just don't like as an institution. It's us. It's, it's the American people having, you know, taken responsibility to elect a president and hopefully have public servants that have been there for a longer period of time to operate the government on our behalf. And right now we need that government to be operating at full maximum capacity. I want to go back to my earlier question about uh, President Harry S. Truman, the buck stops here, and let you listen to what President Trump said this past week at the White House. Dr. Fauci said earlier this week that the lag in testing was, in fact, a failing. Do you take responsibility for that? And when can you guarantee that every single American who needs a test will be able to have a test? What's the date of that? Yeah, no, I don't take responsibility at all because we were given a uh, a set of circumstances and we were given rules, regulations and specifications from a different time. Uh, wasn't meant for this kind of uh, an event uh, with the kind of numbers that we're talking about. And what we've done is redesigned it very quickly with the help of the people behind me. And we're now in very, very strong shape. I think we'll be announcing, as I said, Sunday night. And uh, this will start very quickly. And we have, we'll have the ability to do uh, in the millions uh, over a very, very quick period of time. So, no. And what we have done, and we are going to be leaving a very indelible print for the future in case something like this happens again. But it was a — and that's not the fault of anybody. And frankly, the old system worked very well for smaller numbers, much smaller numbers, but not for these kind of numbers. That exchange with NBC's Kristen Welker from the White House Brady Briefing Room and on Twitter, the president blaming this on Barack Obama, his predecessor. And yet he has been president for the last three and a half years. And one of the most important things I think that a president needs to do is to assume responsibility. That's what we want him to do. I mean, even if that last part of his comments had been first, you know, that this was a situation where things were bigger than we knew, but yes, this is my administration, and I'm going to make sure it's going to be all right, and I will take responsibility for it. Um, when, when JFK took responsibility for the failure of the Bay of Pigs, surprisingly, his numbers went up. And you wonder what would happen if throughout President Trump's entire presidency, when things happened, and he'd taken responsibility, he realized that that's okay. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength to shoulder that responsibility. And then to say, I understand why it happened, and, and we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, that means you've learned. Unless you take responsibility and learn from mistakes that were made, there's no way of going forward. That's how you grow an office. And that's the important thing we need now in this entire crisis is that mistakes are going to be made. Mistakes have already been made. And you, you acknowledge what they are, and then you learn from them. And then hopefully you get better. So are Americans forgiving if a president apologizes? I think they are. I think there's something in today's climate that makes it seem like apologizing is a sign of weakness, um, that, that it's not a good thing to do. I think American people, just think of us as human beings, when somebody does something that, that hurts us, and they apologize, it's just a way for that conversation to go forward. I mean, it's not the answer if something terrible has happened, but at least it means the other person has acknowledged that something's gone wrong, and then you can start to work it out. And I think they would be forgiving, much more than politicians believe, who seem to dig in. You know, even when we've seen during the whole political campaign, 
you know, when people have said things in the past that, that don't sit well today, those people and candidates who are able to say, yes, I did that and I wouldn't do that now, something's changed. I mean, that's the most honest, straightforward way to get beyond a problem. One thing that we are now seeing here in Washington, Doris Kearns Goodwin, is a sense of bipartisanship between Democrats, Republicans, the White House and Capitol Hill. Does it take a crisis to reach that point? You know, what we've seen in these last years is that people would ask themselves the question, what is it going to take to undo this extreme partisanship? Will it take a crisis? And unfortunately, that happens to have been true right now. But all we can say is thank God. They both know on both sides of the hill how important it is to work together. Um, The urgency of having it done makes it maybe not as urgent as it needs to be. I mean, these things, he had the emergency banking bill in, in the in seven hours or so, FDR did, and it's taken a, a week and a half or so for it to go from the House to the Senate, and then there's more bills that are going to have to be done. They should be working around the clock. They have to figure out, too, just as they did in that time, how to change their normal matter of behavior. But the fact that they're working together is a very good sign for the country and for all of us, and maybe it'll create some memories of what it's like. I always kept thinking that the problem with the current Congresses was they had been so long without working together, that they'd forgotten. It was like being in a war. They couldn't remember what peace was. So now maybe they'll remember this time. And this is the optimistic hope that it'll go forward when hopefully all this crisis is over and we move on to the next stage of things that have to be done because there's a lot more that's going to have to be done on the economic side. Um, And it's being done now, but maybe even more of a feeling that it's going to take something as systemic as what we saw in the response to the Great Depression, given how many businesses have been disrupted. And it's not just a question of the bridge between now and when they're back at work. Some businesses may not be there. Things may have to change, and we're going to need government's help to do that. And finally, of course, this is a moment that is affecting every single American in one way or another. So for you personally, in Boston, what's the last week and a half been like for you? Well, it's it's been so um, lucky, as I say, that I'm living in a hotel condo and that my son Joe and his wife Veronica and their 18-month-old baby are still in the same building, too. So that, um, and there's a sense of community here, even if you don't see the people all the time, you stay inside most of the time, you know that you're not alone on a street somewhere else. And you can talk to people, and luckily that's what the internet provides, that's what phones provide. But the overwhelming feeling I have is, is a feeling less even of panic than just of sadness. Sadness that this is confronting our country, sadness that, you know, at a time when for so many people um, that we were looking forward to the future, um, the excitement about a campaign, you know, the normal political ups and downs, but the sense that we there was a new future possibly ahead. And to know how many people, I can't even imagine the suffering that the people are having who've been let go on their jobs that don't have the money to get to the next paycheck. Hopefully the one thing that could come out of this is what came out of that banking crisis and that 100 days in the New Deal was the recognition that it wasn't just enough to solve the problem of the stock market crash and the banking crisis, that there were systemic problems in the country. And the government put people to work in those jobs Um, the CCC and the NYA, all those programs. The stock market was regulated. Um, Homeowners insurance came out. A whole series of really important things, and maybe we're going to have to figure that out when we think about the people that are hurting most are these people that we keep hearing about, half the country living from paycheck to paycheck, 
and that what they are going through compared to other people who have savings or, or are able to work from home is, is so much greater. And that was a problem before all of this, that, they, that people were living so tightly. And maybe it'll allow us then to think about what reforms do we need to do to, to ease the burdens on that group of people, which is a great number of people in this country. Pulitzer Prize-winning author, historian, her most recent book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's joining us from Boston. Thank you for being with us here on C-SPAN's The Weekly. Oh, thank you for having me with you, Steve. Absolutely. And a reminder, this podcast is available wherever you download your favorite podcast on the web at cspan.org. And be sure to rate and review us. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.